And now the second half of the year has sort of been defined more by the Federal Reserve and their policy, their response to inflation. Um, we all knew they were going to fight inflation and now they're going very hard at inflation. And the worry is that they're going too hard and that that's a growing consensus among a lot of market observers, among a lot of uh, economists that the Fed is going too hard against inflation. And in this fight against inflation and in going so hard against it, they're going to walk the economy right into a recession. What's up, ACI investors, and welcome back after a week off to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, definitely a lot to catch up on before we dive in, but what's been right, going right. on the last few weeks? Yeah, way to, way to take off one of the most important weeks ever, Aaron. Thank you. Good job. Good job. Um, no, we're, we're in the midst of, of what I see as a grand finale sort of sell-off, uh, the final inning of the 2022 bear market. It's going to be the nastiest phase, and uh, it's going to be painful. But I think that a bottom is definitely in sight. And we'll go over all the reasons why I think that all the, the valuation, earnings, uh, sentiment indicators, technical indicators that I'm looking at. But yeah, I definitely think we're due for one more round of pretty deep and painful selling before we get that capitulation bottom and a reversal um, on the macro front, which is what we're really looking forward to and still believe that 2023 could be a really good year, will be a really good year for stock. So uh, we'll talk about all that and more over the next hour. Okay, well, I'm definitely looking forward to getting into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, a lot to catch up on, so let's dive right in. Let's start with the market check-in. And actually, mm -hmm. I want to spend most of our time here because I know that you're in the opinion that individual company fundamentals don't really matter until the macro picture improves. Mm -hmm. uh, micros won't matter until macros stop mattering. That's a line you've used before. So what are the macros today and why is everything and everyone acting like a sinking ship? Right, right. Yeah. So the the story of of the year is kind of shifted over the past two months. The first half of the year was all about inflation, uh, creating very big problems for consumers, for companies, for the markets. Um, and now the second half of the year has sort of been defined more by the Federal Reserve and their policy, their response to inflation. Um, we all knew they were going to fight inflation, and now they're going very hard at inflation. And the worry is that they're going too hard. And that, that's a growing consensus among a lot of market observers, among a lot of uh, economists, that the Fed is going too hard against inflation. And in this fight against inflation and in going so hard against it, they're going to walk the economy right into a recession. And based on all of the commentary I'm seeing, based on the investor surveys I'm looking at, 
based on the earnings estimates and their trends recently, uh, based on the commentary that we've received so far in the Q3 earnings season from um, companies and from management teams. Uh, it increasingly appears that a recession is most business people's base case outcome or outlook right now. And a lot of people think we're already in a recession. Technically, we are in a recession, um, but that things will get worse. There will be labor market destruction and the real economy, not just the financial economy, the real economy is going to take a pretty big hit over the next six to 12 months. Um, so that's really what's going on with Wall Street right now. But something that people have to realize is uh, the financial economy leads the real economy. It always does. It leads the real economy on the way down, and it also leads on the way up. Stocks are down 20, the S&P 500 is down 26% in 2022, 26% off its highs. What's happened in the real, like, why? What's happened in the real economy? Unemployment is still 3.5% ultra low. The jobs market is still growing. Uh, corporate earnings are still growing. Yes, GDP is printed negative two quarters in a row. But for all intents and purposes, the real metrics of the economy are still very, very strong. So stocks have dropped 26% in 2022. And many stocks have dropped 30, 40, 50%. Yet the real economy has not taken a hit. There's a reason for that. Financial economy leads real economy. The big drop in stocks in 2022 is a sign that the real economy is going to take a hit in 2023. But that doesn't mean stocks have to go down with the real economy in 2023. Go back to the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009. 2009 was the year when SHIT really hit the fan. 2009 was a year when unemployment soared, when the job market could barely grow, when a lot of things on Main Street were really going tits up. And that's also the mm -hmm. year that stocks rebounded and rallied very strongly because stocks price in recessions and bad things before they happen. And similarly, they price in rebounds and good things before they happen. So the stock market taking its hit in 2022 – is indicative of pain on Main Street in 2023. But that pain on Main Street in 2023 does not necessarily mean stocks have to go down further in 2023. In fact, based on everything I'm looking at, I think stocks can and will go higher in 2023 and pretty substantially higher. And that's because if you look across pretty much all of the important metrics for stocks, right? First is valuation. Let's look at where valuations are on the stock market. The S&P, and I'm just running the numbers this morning, so I got some of them written down here. I got some on my screen right here. You know, the S&P 500 is trading at six, around 16 times forward earnings. That's below mm -hmm. its average since 1990, about 17.3 times. It's below its 20-year average, which is about 17.4 times. It's below its post-great financial crisis average, which is about 17.2 times. So market tends to trade around 17 times forward earnings. We're at 16, so we're below that. It's really below the five-year average of 20 times and really below the 10-year average of 18 times. So we are at below average valuations today. And we're getting very close to historically bottoming valuation levels. So in 2018, we bottomed at 15 times forward earnings. In 2020, we bottomed at around four, over 14 times forward earnings. In 2003, after the dot-com crash, we bottomed at 14.6 times forward earnings. 
So all of those bottoms are around that 14, mid 14 to mid 15 range. So right around 15 times forward earnings. We're at 16 today. So that means only mm-hmm. one point drop on the forward P multiple. And we're at levels consistent with the 2020 low, with the 2018 mm-hmm. low, with the 2003 low. Now the bears will come in here and say, okay, wait, in 2009, we dropped all the way to 10.6 times forward earnings. True. Mm-hmm. You did drop all the way there. This is not 2008, 2009. That mm-hmm. was a period where investors had literally zero faith in the economy, literally mm-hmm. zero faith in the financial system. It felt like everything was about to break. What we're experiencing today is not that. Could it get to that point? Absolutely. But that is nobody's base case outlook. And therefore, the 10 times valuation low of 2008 should not be applied to today. And then mm-hmm. some other bears come out and say, okay, wait, wait, wait. let's go back even further. 1991, stocks didn't bottom there until they hit 11 times forward earnings or the 11.7. So call it 12 times forward earnings. That's true too. And that's well below the 16 that we're at today. But guess where 10-year treasury yields were in 1991? They were above 7%. We're we're barely, we haven't even broken 4% today. So the 1991 Mm -hmm. example should be thrown out because obviously the higher yields are, the lower multiple should be. We are not in that yield environment of 7 8% mm-hmm. on your treasury yields. We're not in that environment. So the P multiple 12 times in that environment doesn't really make sense. So the best comparisons here are, you know, got to throw out 2008, but of the past 25 years, the, the 2020 low, the 2018 low, the 2003 low. Mm-hmm. And those lows were all marked by around a 15 times forward earnings multiple. We're at 16 today. So again, that is a one point drop on the P multiple. That is Mm -hmm. not much farther to fall on valuations. That's pretty positive. So then let's look at the earnings side of the equation. Okay, so earnings, 2023 earnings are supposed to be about $230 a share. Those have been trending down. They actually, I think they started around $245 a share. They've been trending down. So we're seeing earnings estimates come down, and that makes sense because earnings estimates should come down. 2023 is not going to be a year of vigorous economic expansion. So, And mm-hmm. it's going to be a year when profit margins probably take a hit as well. So sales will be slow, margins will go down, earnings will not be great. Mm-hmm. So let's say they keep coming down, 230, 220, a lot of that you do. Um, we are completely washing out there now. That mm-hmm. what you need and also for a bottom to, to form, for a durable bottom to form, is estimates have to stop moving lower. You have to wash out the estimates. Expectations have to be reset to a bar that you can clear. At 245, companies were not going to clear that bar for 2023 earnings. But at 230, 225, 220, that is entirely possible. So let's say earnings come in at 220 next year. And let's mm-hmm. say valuations bottom at around 15 times, 15.5 times. I think there's an argument even for a bottom at 16 times. But let's say 15.5 and you got 220 on next year. Then that means 15.5 on 220 forward. That's a 2022 price target of about 3,400. We're, as of today's drop, we dropped to around 35, 65, I believe. So we are, 3,400 is the level I'm watching on the SEO 100. And that to me is like a, a true durable bottom based on the valuation of stocks and based on the earnings potential of stocks, which are the two biggest mm-hmm. drivers of stocks. So based on what I'm looking at there, 3,400 to me is a true durable bottom. And we are very, very close to that. Another 5% drop and we're there. So that's why I think we are mm-hmm. one big final sell-off away 
from a durable, fundamental, fundamentally supported bottom in stocks. And I mm-hmm. think that that could happen very quickly. Now, the other thing you want to look at mm-hmm. is outside of valuation and outside of earnings, you got to look at a lot of other things, right? Let's look at sentiment. Sentiment is freaking washed right now. The uh, American Association for Individual Investors issues a weekly survey, and they've done this for, I think, like 35 years or something. They issue a weekly survey to a bunch of retail investors, individual investors, self-directed investors, and they ask them, hey, are you bearish on the market? Are you bullish on the market? Are you neutral on the market? What's your equity allocation? They ask them all these sentiment-type questions, right? And so one of the things we look at is, okay, based on those weekly survey results each week, what is the net sentiment? And we gauge Mm -hmm. net sentiment by taking the percentage of bulls and subtracting the percentage of bears to get a net bullish reading. That's what we call it. Mm -hmm. Right now, two of the past three weeks, the number of bears has outnumbered the number of bulls. The percentage of bears has outnumbered the percentage of bulls by 40%. So the net Mm -hmm. bull reading is minus 40%. It's been that two of the past three weeks. That is Mm -hmm. as washed as that survey has ever been. In fact, there have only (laughs) been two previous occurrences of readings of minus 40% or lower on the net bullish reading, on a net, net bullish mm-hmm. number. That was once during the 2008, 2009 massive crash. And it happened mm-hmm. the week of March 6, 2009, which for historians, you will know that is the same week the market bottomed after that big crash. That is the only time throughout all of 2007, 2008, and 2009, only once. Mm-hmm. The net bullish rating from individual investors dropped below minus 40%. And it was the week that stocks bottomed after a 50-60% drawdown. Then the previous Mm -hmm. occurrence was in early 1991. We talked about the paper four evaluation. There was a period of about two months where the readings were consistently below minus 40%. What did stocks do over the next year? They rallied 30%. So... We're at sentiment levels that are historically indicative of either very close to bottoms or at bottoms in terms of a bear market. It happened in early mm-hmm. 1991. We rallied 30% over the next year. It happened in early 2009. We rallied 70% mm-hmm. over the next year. And it's happening again right now. So from a sentiment mm-hmm. perspective, sentiment is so washed that any upside mm-hmm. surprises could cause a lot of alpha in the market. And I think that's exactly mm-hmm. what we're set up for over the next few months. Um, when we look at technicals, RSI, we're entering oversold territory in the S&P 500. That's due for a counter trend rally. When we look at a lot of the oscillators, MACD oscillators for tech stocks, we're getting some really oversold readings that are implying a really big bounce coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at positioning data, a lot of people have gone short. A lot of hedge funds have gone short. Normally, when you get this massive positioning, uh, short positioning, that is indicative of a bottom because everybody is super bearish. So a lot of the factors that we're looking at are like 98% of the way towards indicating a bottom. And one more mm-hmm. 5 10% sell-off gets us there. Another thing we're watching very closely is the VIX. So VIX is the volatility index, a gauge of the market mm-hmm. here. That's what they call it. And <laughs> VIX tends to spike to above 40 when a durable market bottom is put in. This this happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. This happened in 2018. This happened in um, in 2008, 2003, when, or at least 2002. When durable market bottoms are established, 
the VIX is normally above 40 because in order for a durable market bottom to happen, normally you have to have a capitulation moment, which is normally driven by mm-hmm. this panic selling. This, 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 oh my God, we just freaked out, run for the exits, sell everything, ask questions yeah. later, right? That's, that, mm-hmm. that is normally the bottom. Um, and that's usually accompanied by a VIX spike above 40. The VIX has not spiked above 40 this entire bear market. But right now we're climbing. That last I checked, we were at 34. So again, mm-hmm. we are one, you know, 3% down, 4% down, 5% down day from that VIX spiking to 42, 43, 44, 45, at which mm-hmm. point the VIX is at a level that is historically consistent with a market bottom. So across all of these metrics, technicals, fundamentals, sentiment, um, optics. It appears the market is in the eighth or ninth inning of the bear market. And that's mm-hmm. really exciting because once the bear market ball game is over and mm-hmm. bottom of the ninth and it's over, game over, the next ball game that starts is nine innings of a bull market. That's mm-hmm. that's how this cycle works. That's how capitalism works. Boom, bust, boom. <laughs> Once you get a nine-inning bear market, you get a nine-inning bull market. And that Mm -hmm. nine-inning bull market tends to last five, seven, nine, ten years. So that's Mm -hmm. why we're really excited about buying stocks today because, yes, we're probably not at the bottom, but we Mm -hmm. are close to the bottom, both in terms of time Mm -hmm. and in terms of percentage and price. So accumulate now, continue to accumulate Mm -hmm. And put yourself in a position to own a lot of stocks, great stocks at low cost bases for what will likely be nine innings of a bull market that starts in 2023. Now, Mm -hmm. from a first principles perspective, because we have to look at it from a first principles perspective, it's all going to come down to the Fed. And Mm -hmm. the Fed has sounded exceptionally hawkish over the past several months, and they've not really veered from that script until recently. Over the past week... Two Fed members, um, Charles Evans and Lael Brainerd, have both opened the door in separate comments for a potential change in stance from the Fed. And we have not Mm -hmm. heard comments like that ever. Um, So the fact that we're hearing that now on the heels of the Bank of England obviously capitulated, the Polish Central Bank capitulated, the Reserve Bank of Australia capitulated. So the central bank Mm -hmm. domino effect is, is happening. The capitulation trend is here. Um, but the Bank of England is now stepping up their efforts that they announced a bond buying program. And now they're expanding that bond buying program because they need to rescue their markets. Um, mm-hmm. The Fed is not blind to this. And there's also a growing chorus of people that go on CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox Business or go to Twitter. And the consensus among all these analysts and pros is the Fed is going to overdo it. That what they're saying they're going to do is overdoing it. So the Fed doesn't mm-hmm. have blinders on. They don't have blinders on. They understand mm-hmm. that you know they might they they're at risk of overdoing it. So they are now opening the door for a potential policy pivot. I don't think that means that happens in November, and I don't think mm-hmm. it means it happens in December. I think that pivot happens in early twenty three. If I were to just if I'm a betting man and I place a bet on it, I would say the Fed goes seventy in November and they go seventy five in November and they go fifty in December. So they follow through mm-hmm. on that one twenty five. But then after that, I think they reassess and I think they pause because Mm -hmm. job openings came down dramatically. The labor market is slowing. When you look at Mm -hmm. leading indicators of the job market, so Mm -hmm. whether that's CEO surveys or whether that's the ISM manufacturing numbers or whether that's the ISM service numbers or whether that's the leading economic indicators index from um, the conference board, 
Um, regardless of what you look at, all the leading indicators imply the labor market is on pace to get destroyed over the next three to six months. I mm-hmm. highly doubt the Fed is going to wait until the moment that happens to pivot. I think they mm-hmm. wait another three months. And then once that starts to really slow, the labor, the jobs market goes from adding 300,000 jobs a month to less than 100,000 jobs a month, which I think is very possible by December, by January. That's when the Fed pivots because the Fed doesn't want people to lose their mm-hmm. job. And at that point in time, I think I'm seeing enough in the inflation data to warrant that inflation is going to substantially cool over the next few months. Supply chains are dramatically mm-hmm. improving. Uh, used vehicle prices mm-hmm. are collapsing. Um, home prices are coming down. Rents are coming down. Freight rates are crashing. Uh, yes, oil is spiked back up to, to 92. But I mean, just just consider this for a moment. You needed... <laughs> You needed OPEC plus, the, the biggest producer, the cartel of oil in the world, to mm-hmm. announce a recession-sized production cut at a mm-hmm. time of massive oil supply shortages because of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. You needed this huge, discrete catalyst to mm-hmm. come in just to support oil prices at 90, and they didn't even hold 90. Right now, they're, they're at 89. <laughs> so it's it, it's kind of like that should have put oil to 130, 140, yeah. 150. But the fact that it's not tells you the market is saying there's so much demand destruction on the horizon that it, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the supply side looks like right now. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're not going to push oil up to 100, 120, 130, 140, 150. That's just not going to happen no matter what OPEC Plus does. So um, at the end of the day, I, I think that oil prices are going to continue to trend lower in a in a multi-month window. Yes, I think they're going to spike, obviously, here for a month. But in a multi-month window, I think they trend lower. Uh, the only mm-hmm. thing that's, that's worrisome is, is the food side of the equation. But you have to understand that it's not the Fed's job to control non-core inflation. They're focused on core inflation. They're focused mm-hmm. on everything X, food, and energy because mm-hmm. they're a demand factor. And what drives food? What drives energy? Supply. Our demand for food and energy is going to stay resilient no matter what. It can oscillate a little bit, but not a lot. Supply determines those things. The Fed doesn't control that, and that's why the Fed has always benchmarked themselves to core inflation rates, not headline inflation rates. So I Mm -hmm. think core inflation rates are going to dramatically fall out, and it's going to get to levels the Fed's very comfortable with by early 2023, and then we're going to get that pivot, and then it's going to be off to the races. When do stocks bottom? Probably before that. Stocks are discounting mechanisms. Do you think they're going to wait to the very last moment for the Fed to pivot? No. They're going to read the tea leaves from Fed commentary, from press releases, from press conferences, from all that stuff. And I think markets start start to work through a bottom before that Fed pivot comes, meaning they start to work through a bottom here in October, in November, and in December. And again, I think we go mm-hmm. down to that 4,400 level, find support and rebound from there. So mm-hmm. I know that was that was a long and a, <laughs> lot of, a lot of stuff to throw against the wall, but that is my macro thesis right now. That's where I'm at. That's where I, That's why... Mm-hmm. I am pretty bullish at the current moment. When you have people mm-hmm. like Jamie Dimon coming out and saying, we're going to, CEO JP Morgan, saying, we're going to drop yeah. another 20%. When you have Paul Tudor Jones saying, the recession is already here. When you have Michael Burry coming on Twitter and going absolutely nutso, like just mm-hmm. not nutso in a bad way, just, he's, you know, he's tweeting all the time now. When yep. this happens, that is a, that, that's, that's a psychology shift. The bears are solidly in control now, just like the bulls were solidly in control in 2021. Mm-hmm. 
whenever one camp becomes gets too much power, that camp tends to fall and it tends to be a turning point. And I think the mm-hmm. Bears are getting a lot of power right now and a lot of spotlight, and they're coming out of the woodworks. It's twenty percent lower, thirty percent crack. <laughs> like all of this is happening, and so uh-huh. I think that is also indicative from a sentiment standpoint, a psychology standpoint, that we're at a point in the cycle where the worst case outcomes are becoming people's mm-hmm. base case outcomes. And that is when you start to find some support and and rebound. Again, I still think Mm -hmm. we go maybe 5 to 10% lower here. I don't think we're at Mm -hmm. the bottom, but we are getting very close to the bottom. So with us being so close to the bottom, and you just outlined a lot, is there going to be a single catalyst that gets us to that bottom? Or is it just time is going to take over and when we hit it, we hit it? Yeah, I mean, I I think the bottom is is going to happen. I mean – it's going to be confirmed by mm-hmm. the eventual Fed pivot. And by Fed okay. pivot, I mean like probably it's probably going to be a Fed pause. So as opposed mm-hmm. to cutting rates, they just stop hiking rates. That's going to confirm the bottom, but I don't think it's going to mark the bottom, if that makes sense. Because, okay. again, stocks tend to bottom before things happen in real life because – Markets mm-hmm. are forward looking. People are anticipating this. So people are going to be anticipating that Fed bottom before it happens, meaning there's going to be buying pressure before that actual event happens. Uh, when that buying pressure arrives, when the real bottom actually happens, I don't know. I can't give you an exact mm-hmm. day or week or month. But what I do believe is that exact bottom will be put in sometime between now and February 2023. That I think an mm-hmm. exact bottom will be put in in that time frame over the next three months, call it. And it mm-hmm. will be confirmed by what will likely be a Fed pivot in early 2023. Like, oh, we pivoted. That's why we – oh, they pivoted. That's why we bought them two weeks ago, four weeks ago, a month ago, uh, two mm-hmm. months ago. And then it's off to the races and that will confirm the start of, of a new bull market, a new era of, of economic expansion for, for the U.S. and potentially mm-hmm. for the entire globe. So. Okay, so you're basically saying that macros are going to start improving again very soon. Uh, Then the micros are going to, I guess, start mattering again. On the micro front, where are you looking for opportunity? You know, we've talked about your big three, robotics, space, climate tech before. Is that still your big three going into 2023 with that macro perspective still kind of in the back burner right now? Uh, yes, I, I love climate tech, space, and, and robotics. And actually, climate tech, I've, I've become that was 10 out of 10 bullish. Now I'm 15 out of 10 because of OPEC Plus. The simple reality mm-hmm. is that OPEC Plus, 2 million barrel cut, all that really does. And then oil prices go up. It's like, okay, if I'm a consumer and I'm sitting here mm-hmm. and I'm like, we're in a massive oil shortage. The US mm-hmm. government and Federal Reserve have done their part to. Um, lower gas prices. I mean, gas prices nationally collapsed from five bucks to three bucks. I mean, it was, it was, it was a great time right over the summer. And then now they're coming back up and why are they coming back up? Because OPEC plus decided to play, you know, a little political tiffy taff with the U S government and, and do some, it, what? Like OPEC plus cuts production. And then my gas prices go up again. One of the reasons we got super bullish on climate tech at the beginning of the year is because one of my arguments mm-hmm. was consumers, businesses, and governments are going to be absolutely pissed that Russia invades Ukraine, nothing to do with me, yet my energy bill mm-hmm. goes up. Like, mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. And then now we're having the same thing. 
OPEC plus cuts production, my energy bill goes up. And I had nothing to do with that. The U.S. government had nothing mm-hmm. to do with that. European governments had nothing to do with that. Yet they are suffering from the consequences of what is an absolutely stupid boneheaded decision by OPEC plus. And mm-hmm. I think all that's going to do is get governments, businesses, and consumers throughout North America and throughout Europe to adopt, more hastily adopt, alternative energy sources. More solar panels, more hydrogen mm-hmm. facilities, restart the nuclear, you know, get, mm-hmm. get electric vehicles on the road. I think that is exactly what's going to happen. Anecdotes are not data, but I cannot tell you over the past week, ever since this OPEC, OPEC Plus announcement here in California, we're paying absurd gas prices. The amount of people I've talked to, whether it's you know going out and playing basketball on Tuesday nights or, or going out to a bar or talking to people at dinner, all these people I talk to, everybody is talking about going electric. They're fed up with gas prices. They're fed up of being subject to the whims of volatile energy prices that their own government doesn't even control anymore. So I think mm-hmm. that there's going to be a massive shift towards clean energy solutions throughout North America and throughout Europe. And I think that is going to create enormous investment opportunities for us in solar stocks, in hydrogen stocks, and especially in battery energy storage stocks. I think that's going to be the mm-hmm. epicenter of this entire movement, battery energy storage systems. That's going to be what everything mm-hmm. hinges on. So we need more deployments of that. I think there's going to be massive opportunities there and massive opportunities in electric vehicle stocks. Um, So, yeah, I I really like the climate tech space. And then you talk about automation, Mm -hmm. um, robotics. Mm -hmm. Tesla, when when last week we we missed it, we didn't get to talk about it. Yeah, the the robot reveal by Tesla. Raise the roof robot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, I mean, the. The robot itself today is, is not super <laughs> impressive, but it, it does show you that here is mm-hmm. probably the most forward-thinking, the most innovative company in the world, mm-hmm. and they're basically telling you they're all in on robots. And they're not the only one, mm-hmm. right? Another hyper, hyper-innovative company, Amazon, has also mm-hmm. more discreetly gone all in on robots. They've automated all their warehouses. Mm-hmm. They acquired a warehouse automation firm and they acquired iRobot, the robotic vacuum cleaner, and they rolled out – what is that little robot called? Astro. The little – yeah, the, little the two-wheel thing little, that like – Yeah, yeah, the two-wheel thing that was supposed I to just kind of go around. I know exactly deal. what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, his name's Astro and he's going around homes and they even Astro, revealed yeah. – Because Amazon owns Ring and so what they debuted a whole yeah. new series of products for Ring – and now mm-hmm. they're including Astro as a feature set of Ring. So Astro is now going to monitor your home and secure your home. So Amazon's also going all in here. So we have two mm-hmm. signals from two of the most innovative technology firms on this planet, probably the two most innovative technology firms on this planet, going all in on robotics. Pay attention. Pay attention to those moves. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's significant. So yes, I think robotics is going to be a huge investment theme in the twenty in the twenty twenties, and I think the real boom is going to start starting right now, I believe, and it's going to accelerate in twenty twenty three. And as you know, we personally are are very excited about low level automation, so automation in mm-hmm. restaurants, automation in retail, automation in warehouses, automation in factories, automation at construction sites. Because that's where there are labor shortages. We've talked about this before. There's a massive massive bifurcation. 
in the labor market these days. There is a surplus of white collar workers who want to make, you know, six figures sitting at a computer and coding or planning mm-hmm. projects or modeling stocks. And then there are aren't that many people who want to go out and, and serve tables and, and bus tables and make food and make homes and package products. That That's where there's a massive labor shortage. Every restaurant I go to right now is hiring. Yet mm-hmm. Facebook's firing, Instagram's firing, Shopify's firing, Square's firing, Roku's firing. You know, like, so huge bifurcation in the labor market right now. We don't need automation over in white collar America. We need automation in blue collar America. And mm-hmm. so we're really bullish on that low level, low level automation solutions. And that's where our portfolios are angled right now. And we're really excited about some of the investments um, in that space. And then space, you know, third theme, space. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're really excited about that as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot of cool developments happening there. And there's been a lot of successful launches recently. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the companies that we follow very closely are just hitting landmark after a milestone after milestone. Um, and their businesses appear to be very strong. Demand appears to be very strong. And I think across all of these these sectors, one thing that we would like to really emphasize is supply chains are improving. So mm-hmm. the inflation problems that were holding back a lot of these industries from exploding are being fixed. Let's talk about electric vehicles. Electric vehicle mm-hmm. costs had been plummeting for a decade from 2010 to 2021. And that plunge in cost is what was a big driver of electric vehicle adoption, right? We went from Mm -hmm. super expensive EVs to semi-affordable EVs, so people started buying them. That was a huge reason behind the EV boom. And that sort of slowed here in 2022 because of supply chain issues, right? Lithium prices went up. Mm -hmm. There was a bunch of production bottlenecks. China was locked down. All of these things were happening, so it was really tough. But those things are now being smoothed over. Freight rates have collapsed. Metal prices have come down. And production bottlenecks are no longer a thing in terms of of COVID-19 lockdown. So those issues are being resolved. While at the same time, gas prices are going up and staying high. So the delta now is growing. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the the cost delta. And I think that's going to be a huge driver for electric vehicle adoption in 2023 because EV costs are going to resume their secular decline in 2022 as supply chains normalize and inflation comes down. Yet mm-hmm. gas cars are going to get more expensive, are going to stay really expensive because OPEC Plus doesn't want oil prices to go down. So mm-hmm. if OPEC Plus <laughs> can cut production and, and put a floor on oil at $85, $90 a barrel, then your gas is going to be four or five bucks a gallon for the foreseeable future. The more mm-hmm. that stays at four or five bucks a gallon, and a neck, you know, in 2023, a new round of EVs come out and they're $25,000. In 2024, they're $20,000. In 2025, they're $15,000. And you're still paying four or five bucks a gallon of gas? Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to, the, the reason to switch becomes more and more compel, compelling the yeah. bigger that cost delta gets. So, very excited about the easing of supply chain issues creating mm-hmm. more growth opportunities, not just for climate tech, but we were talking about space, for space as well, and for a lot of these industries that rely on critical components to get their rocket ships in, into space, to get their electric vehicles <laughs> on the road, to get their robots mm-hmm. in factories. So as those mm-hmm. issues get resolved, these companies should have more production volume, which should lead to more growth, more demand, and higher stock prices. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so big, 
<laughs> so those are the big three. Um, are there any other sectors that you're getting bullish on? I mean, some of the, your recent research notes have actually highlighted gold and real estate as potential buys today. Can right. you expand on that? Yeah, so we like we like the gold thesis. Um, we, we're getting increasingly bullish on gold. Now, I'm not a gold guy. Like, let's just make that very clear. There, there are yeah, some. I've never like this is new to me. So that, I'm like a little curious. Yeah, there, there. I mean, there's some investors out there that are just perma gold bulls, and no mm -hmm. matter what what happens, hell or high water, boom bust, no matter what, they're bullish on gold. Um, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. Never have been really, but. We've noticed just there's so many similarities in terms of price action with 2008, right? And that, that is why okay. we made the macro call on short oil at 120 because we we're like, mm -hmm. hey, oil surged in 2008 and then it collapsed as soon as people realized a recession was likely. Um, mm -hmm. And we're like, this is what's happening right now. Oil is surging in 2022. It's probably going to collapse as soon as people realize a recession is likely. And that's what happened. Oil fell from 120 to 78 as we were making that short oil call. So this, the, the long gold call is, is a macro call along the same lines. Let's go back mm -hmm. to 2008. Gold is viewed as a safe haven asset. But in 2008, gold fell with stocks for a large part mm -hmm. of that crash until the eighth or ninth inning of the sell-off. And the sell-off mm -hmm. got really intense. The Fed really started to capitulate, started to do everything possible to save the economy from collapse. And there was a lot of mm -hmm. money printing going on. And as soon as that happened, eighth or ninth inning of the sell-off, sell-off got really intense. And Fed started to support the markets in whatever way they could. Mm -hmm. That's when gold caught a bid. That's mm -hmm. when gold started acting like a safe haven asset. In late 08 and early 09, gold had a very powerful rally, a very good stretch. Mm -hmm. We think we're in that stretch right now. We're in the eighth or ninth inning of the sell-off. We think the sell-off is mm -hmm. going to get really intense. And we think the Fed's going to start acting more supportive of markets over the next three months. So if you get all three of those things, gold mm -hmm. has been crushed year to date with stocks, just like it was crushed yeah. year to date at this point in 2008. But we think mm -hmm. we're at that critical inflection point where gold can actually stage an upwards rally here as this final sell-off ensues. Things get really panicky out there. And the Fed then comes to the rescue of the markets with, with supportive policies. In that situation, how, gold could be significantly higher over the next six to 12 months. And how long did that rally last last time it happened? Uh, for gold, it lasted quite a while. Um, the, mm -hmm. the gains were especially powerful in the first three to six months, but it lasted for several years. So mm -hmm. that that is also something that to keep in mind that this is probably a, a multi-year outlook for, for gold. But the way we're looking at it is more of a short-term, like six to 12-month surge in gold prices mm -hmm. uh, as a result of excessive panic in the markets. Because gold, tend, again, gold tends not to – it is a safe haven asset, but it doesn't act like a safe haven asset until people mm -hmm. are really freaking out. Like kind of freaking out doesn't get people to go into gold. You have to have mm -hmm. like Armageddon level freak out for people to really. Run <laughs> and, you know, I mean, not that we're on the verge of nuclear Armageddon, though some people would argue we are. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I think we're getting close to market fear levels close to that. And mm -hmm. therefore, gold is, okay. is close to catching a bid. Gotcha. And, then, and, uh, yeah, and real estate. Real estate. Yeah. Yeah, the housing market looks like it's it's about to roll over, right? But I think it's 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 just things are going to get a lot better. Like the bottom is in sight. Um, mm -hmm. The demand side and of you this talked about it before. Yeah, go ahead. You talked about it before. Is this bottom still a part of your normalization? That this is the market normalizing itself? 
Yeah, I mean, prices are still prices are still very elevated, and home buying activity is still within normal ranges. It's at the lower end of normal ranges, mm-hmm. but it's still within normal ranges. This is nothing like 08 right now, and it's never mm-hmm. going to get like that because the mm-hmm. demand. Well, first off, the quality of loan originations is so much higher. 08 happened for two reasons: massive oversupply and very, mm-hmm. very, very poor loan quality. We have neither mm-hmm. of those today. We have massive undersupply and very high loan quality. So it's not a repeat of 08. Meanwhile, the X Mm -hmm. factor here is demand. There are so many Mm -hmm. people out there, my age range, 22 to 42, that do not own homes, that want to own homes. Mm -hmm. They are sitting on the sidelines. They are waiting for any weakness in the market to jump in. (laughs) They are waiting for any weakness in mortgage rates to jump in. They are there. They are ready to buy. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that in 06. There was nobody, there wasn't a huge mass of people sitting on the sidelines because everybody owned homes. Mm-hmm. We built so many homes from 2000 to 2006 and handed out all these crappy loans that everybody mm-hmm. and their best friend owned a home, even if you had no business owning a home. But today, <laughs> we have a lot of people that are very well capitalized with a lot of cash, a lot of buying power, and great jobs that are sitting mm-hmm. on the sidelines, deserve to own a home, and just waiting to get their chance. So mm-hmm. we're seeing that in some of the new home sales numbers. New home sales, as soon as the new home uh, adjusted sales prices fell, boom, the mm-hmm. next month, new home sales volume surged. That's a sign of a lot of pent-up demand on the sidelines. So I think there is a bottom in sight for the housing market. Because I think, one, there's a lot of demand on the sidelines. Two, we're still mm-hmm. in a very undersupplied market. Um, mm-hmm. Three, the uh, the Fed is likely to make pivot in the next three months. And therefore, I think mortgage rates are pretty close to maxing out. And they can come down substantially in 2023. So I think that while home prices will drop over the next two to three, four, five, six months, and mm-hmm. while home sales activity will slow over the next two, three, four to five, six months, I think that come – Second quarter 23, third quarter 23, fourth quarter 23, and into 2024, the home market, the housing market is going to be very strong again. Um, because I think mortgage rates are going to go lower. This demand is going to come in from the sidelines. And the undersupply situation is, is going to remain an undersupply situation for, for quite a bit longer. So I think that the housing market is going to be actually quite strong within 12 months and then grow very healthily in a 12 month to 24, 36 month window. So a bottom is in sight. And again, real estate stocks, housing stocks, like other stocks, they price things in Mm -hmm. before they happen. Those stocks have been crushed this year and they fell significantly before the housing market started to roll over. So they're going to rebound Mm -hmm. significantly before the housing market starts to really stage a comeback. And so if investors start to see a comeback to the housing market materializing in mid-2023, you could start to see housing stocks start to shape up here in late 2022 Mm -hmm. and early 2023. That's why I'm getting pretty bullish on real estate stocks. And I look at the valuations across a lot of those names, whether it's home builders, whether it's iBuyers, whether it's digital uh, real estate brokerages, uh, you're, you're starting to see a lot of really cheap, stocks in that in that market and so this is probably the time to be greedy when others are fearful this is a good time to get greedy on those stocks <laughs> and actually on that note it reminds me one thing i forgot to mention earlier is um so there's there's this there's a digital real estate brokerage out there they're called compass and compass mm-hmm. 
is publicly traded and they want public to give us back and it, it's been a disaster and it's, it's dropped oh, significantly. But last week, I believe it was rumors broke that a major PE firm, private equity firm is thinking about taking compass private go, coming mm-hmm. in and, and buying the company and taking them private. Um, that mm-hmm. one indicates they believe compass stock is significantly undervalued, but two, mm-hmm. we, we ran the numbers on this. Following M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions activity, is very important at this point in time because deal count, M&A deal count, tends to Mm -hmm. coincide with the bottom of market. So when P firms and companies and when we're not merging, we're not acquiring, we're not deal making, that's Mm -hmm. bad. When these companies start to return to their deal-making ways, it means they Mm -hmm. start to think the bottom is in place and they tend to be right. The stock market bottom Mm -hmm. after the dot-com crash coincided with a bottom in in M&A deal count. The -hmm. stock market bottom after the great financial crash coincided with a bottom in M&A deal count. The COVID Mm -hmm. crash 2020, that bottom Mm -hmm. in the market coincided with a bottom in, in M&A deal count. We've mm-hmm. seen M&A deal count decline all year long. Mm-hmm. But in the fourth quarter of 2022, it's off to a red hot start. Red hot start. Okay. And if it keeps up its pace, I, the, I wrote the numbers down a couple of days ago when I was going through this. So this, <laughs> this, this, is, this is old data. This is from October 5th. So okay, it, the numbers have probably changed a little bit, but – Back on October 5th, we there had been around 900 M&A deals executed in the first five days of October. So that's about 180 mm-hmm. deals a day. There's 92 days mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. So that implies that the fourth quarter pace, M&A volume, is, it's on pace to do 16,560 deals in that quarter, which would be above the third quarter total. The first quarter over okay. quarter increase in M&A deal count during this bear market. The first quarter over quarter increase in M&A deal count in the bear market of 2020 marked the end of that bear market. The first quarter over quarter increase in M&A deal count in the 2008-2009 bear market marked the bottom of that bear market. The first quarter over quarter increase in M&A deal count in the 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003 uh, bear market marked the end of that bear market. If this deal-making pace continues, then one can mm-hmm. reasonably state that this is yet another data point confirming that the stock market should bottom this quarter. And Mm -hmm. if it does, then M&A deal count will significantly increase over the next few uh, months and weeks. But, you know, uh, Naver just took out Poshmark. So that was a big deal Mm -hmm. that also happened. Um, Ginkgo Bioworks has executed a few few deals recently. So there's just been a lot of deal making and it's increasing quite significantly. So we're watching that very closely. But it's also another data point that makes us pretty bullish. The stock market bottom is, is fairly close. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you've outlined pretty much every single factor that I think any of our viewers could think of when it comes to outlining this thesis and this macro perspective. Um, but we definitely also have some fan questions that are a little more specific. Actually, we have right. a ton of them because we've been off for, for two weeks. Um, so I'm going to have some for you right now. First, from Francisco Rigoza. Luke, would you be able to explain in plain terms what happened to pensions in UK last week? In plain terms, okay, 
Um, <laughs> this is as plainly as I can probably state it. Sure. Generally speaking, financial firms tend to mm-hmm. create investment strategies, financial strategies that bank on the fact or the idea that safe assets, low risk assets, risk free assets, well, remain mm-hmm. safe assets, risk free assets, low risk assets. And when they stop doing that, when they start acting like volatile assets, their models start to break. And when those models have leverage in them, that leverage can create a contagion, which causes defaults, bankruptcies, and can spill across all the entire financial system and lead to massive mm-hmm. loss of funds, massive unemployment, massive firing, all that stuff. That's what happened with, with UK pension funds, that they, their banking regulations and laws post-08 were not as stringent as they were in, in America. And UK pension funds were allowed to, to lever up on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the key critical components of that leverage, that to making that leverage successful, was the idea mm-hmm. that gilts, their bonds, UK bonds, would be low risk. But bonds, mm-hmm. UK bonds, have been very high risk in 2022, and especially over the past two or three months, that these bonds have lost a significant amount of value. And so these UK pension funds that were levered up and whose leverage was dependent on the fact that UK bonds would hold their value, when the value of UK bonds started to really collapse in July, August, September, the rumor is, mm-hmm. um, or the reports are, that these these pension funds are about to go tits up, and they are about to just mm-hmm. be completely gone. So that's why the Bank of England stepped in, and they had to save these pension funds. Else, pensions would be lost, and obviously, that's just disaster for the regular uh, British consumer that the Bank mm-hmm. of England did not want, would not want. And so they stepped in to save the day, stabilize those bond markets, stabilize the value mm-hmm. of British bonds, and thereby stabilizing the financial portfolios of UK pension funds. So mm-hmm. that is about as plainly as I can state what happened in the UK. And it's important because a lot of people think the Bank of England will lead to a Fed capitulation. But you have to understand the Bank of England came in to save something from breaking. Mm-hmm. U.S. pension funds aren't like that. Mm-hmm. U.S. banks aren't like that. At least the big boys aren't. Mm-hmm. So we're not – United States is not breaking – the financial system is not breaking in a way that the U.K. system was about to break. If the U.S. system gets to that point, then yes, the Fed will step in. But we're not there yet. And this is how we go back to the bull in the China shop analogy. Mm-hmm. That all the central banks around the world right now are bulls in China shops. In some of these China shops, the bulls are breaking the China. In Australia, mm-hmm. China started to break. In Poland, China started to break. In England, China started to break. So the bull left the China shop and stopped <laughs> prancing around. In America, <laughs> though, in, in, the, in the American China shop, none of the China's yeah. broken. The, the mm-hmm. bull is in there, and there's a lot of risk. The China's mm-hmm. on the edge, but it hasn't quite broken yet. And so mm-hmm. we don't see the Fed, the bull – leaving mm-hmm. the proverbial China shop pivoting until mm-hmm. something actually falls off the shelf and breaks or until something gets so dangerously close to breaking that they have no choice mm-hmm. but to put it back. 
So um, mm. we're not quite there yet, but we, like I said, we're another five, 10% sell off another few months away from getting to that point. And that's why we're constructively bullish on stocks. Although we don't think that a pivot is going to happen imminently. Okay. Uh, next question from Luis Matarazzo. People keep buying new homes. Is it because of adjustable interest rates, mortgages? And I think we already answered this, but let's answer Luis's question directly. Yeah, no, I know. Arms are all the rage these days. I mean, I, I got friends that are in the market and they're telling me, you know, they're, they're brokers are saying arms, 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 arms. That's the only thing they're selling are arms. So, yeah, I think arms are definitely very popular, but that's not, I don't think that's why a lot, you know, there's still a lot of home demand. The reason why is that there is a huge cohort of individuals in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that just simply want to own a home, that have the financial means to own a home now, that are at that point in their lives where they want to own a home. Either they're married or they're very serious with somebody else or they, they have a kid. Um, or multiple kids, like it's time to 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 get get your own home. And there's a huge cohort of Americans that are in that in that that stage of their lives. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that just supports a lot of home buying demand. That these people need homes, and as soon as you get a hiccup in in prices or a hiccup in mortgage rates, they they're coming back into the market. So we already talked about that, so no need to go too much in depth there. But long mm -hmm. story short, my theory is that. Home demand remains strong, even though affordability is really low. Uh, yes, partially because of arms and partially because of other mm -hmm. dynamics like that. But I think mostly just because there is a huge cohort of Americans that are financially able and want mm -hmm. to own homes at this point in time. So they're going to buy a home. And people look at a home as a 10, 20, 25-year investment. Mm -hmm. Nobody that I know that's in the market thinks home prices are going to be lower in 10 years. So people are just looking at it as a long-term thing. And um, I think that's what's supporting a lot of the home buying demand today. Uh, and that's, um, yeah. All right. Uh, next question from Alan Glick. Appreciate the open and SoFi update. I sold Neo two months ago because I wasn't as bullish on China as you were. Though after your comments today, maybe I'll go back. Do you like Xpeng? Um, not terribly bullish on, on China per se. I don't know if I gave off that impression. I apologize. I'm not terribly bullish on China. Uh, mm -hmm. I do love Neo as, as a company because they're expanding mm -hmm. outside of China. I love their European expansion plans. I think they have a huge opportunity over there and I'm excited for the North American expansion likely in 23 or 24. So, um, that's why I like Neo, not because of China. Uh, Xpeng, I just can't get there on the valuation right now, and I can't get there on, on the technology. The reason I like Neo is because it has the best EV technology in the China EV game. And I think that mm -hmm. as they expand into other markets, that technology is going to shine very, very, very bright. My thesis on EV stocks is you either, in order to sell a lot of EVs, you either have to have a kick-ass EV, or you got to sell mm -hmm. that even super, super, super cheap. Or you have to be able to mm -hmm. produce so much of them that people can get them like instantly. You have to do one of those mm -hmm. three things. Okay. Um, I don't know if Xpeng does any of those three things in a way mm -hmm. that allow them to sell a bunch of EVs outside of China. Um, and so I think Neo has the kick-ass EV. So they're going to be able to mm -hmm. sell a lot of EVs in North America and a lot of EVs in Europe. Um, I think Rivian, for example, has the, the kick-ass EV. And then I think the production is also getting there. So I think that that's why I'm bullish on them. Lucid, obviously the kick-ass EV. 
Fisker has the super cheap EV. So like the ones that mm-hmm. I'm excited about, they do something in one of those three verticals that allows me to get bullish on them. I'm not sure XPeng does that. And I'm not sure a lot of mm-hmm. the other companies that are, that are in the space do that. But um, Neo again, has the kick-ass EV, and that's why I like that as, as a global story. Okay. Uh, next question from Phil McDaniels. Sure would like to know what your thoughts are on open. Now I bought it when you pounded the table at $30 a share. I now have a $3 stock that could take years to recover. What is your stance on open now? Thank you. Right. Yeah. So open probably will take uh, years to recover to, to 30. But uh, again, I, I continue to believe that Open Door is just the next iteration of Amazon applied to the housing market. And I know a lot of people have thrown out mm-hmm. that thesis and think it's complete hogwash and probably think I'm an idiot for thinking that. But um, a lot of people thought that about Amazon back in 2001, 2002, when it collapsed to a $5 stock, very similar to Open Door. You know, it dropped way more, mm-hmm. actually. It dropped from, you know, the hundreds to, to that $5 range. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it bounced back vigorously, 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 vigorously. Mm-hmm. And it has had a, an enormous, it had an enormous rally from that low over the next 12 months, two years, three years, four years, five years. And 10 years later, it was significantly above those early 2000 peaks, 15 years later, 20 years later, right? Like those 2000 peaks feel like a little squiggle. I think, I think open door is the <laughs> same thing. Honestly, I, I, mm-hmm. I really do. Believe, yes. I, the destruction has been painful and intense and that was a mistimed call there's no doubt about it but mm-hmm. do i think it still goes to 100 200 250 300 over the next five to ten years absolutely absolutely freaking lootly i think this is a 200 dollars stock within seven years or less just based on the numbers so um yeah, I, I still am, am very bullish on Open Door, and at three dollars, two dollars and ninety cents, two dollars and eighty cents, yeah, it's it's a stock that if you own, I would say yeah, continue to dollar cost average into that puppy because I think it goes significantly higher in in a multi year window. I think to understand about Open Door is, and it's very similar to Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. They are they are doing something that's never been done before successfully at scale, and that mm-hmm. is I. Mm-hmm. Amazon back in 2000, 2001 was doing something that had never been done before successfully at scale. And that was mass e-commerce. Mm-hmm. No one had done that profitably or at scale or with enough purpose uh, to, at that point in time. Amazon ended up proving to the market that the model works, that they can be profitable, that everybody wants to shop online, and that they can, on top of that core business, grow ancillary businesses that will boost the profitability of its core business. As they proved mm-hmm. the model, Wall Street rewarded the stock. I think mm-hmm. Open is in the same situation. It's getting pounded because Wall Street doesn't believe in the model, but I'm pretty darn sure Open Door is going to prove the model. And this crisis is giving them the opportunity to prove the model. If Open Door can get through this housing market, like this, again, the housing market, we got 70 years of data here. It rarely goes through what it's going through right now. Like once every 25 years, maybe, it goes through what it's going through right now, where you have a period of price declines and sluggish act, really sluggish activity that doesn't happen really ever in the housing market. So if open door mm-hmm. can get through this, mm-hmm. then that is the best proof ever that, Hey, 
we threw this cub in a den of wolves and it came out <laughs> a freaking wolf, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it came out ready to take over the world. And that's mm-hmm. what I think Open Doors is going to do. I think they're going to prove the business model. They're going to show that margins don't get hit that hard, that their 5% commission is enough to allow buffer. And at scale, they can run it positive, even the margins, even the negative pricing environment. And so I think that if they show that, Wall Street's going to be like, well, congratulations. You just survived the horror show. Let's, let's go off to the races. <laughs> and so I, I think that's what happens with Open Door stock. And that's why I'm very, I continue to be very optimistic about it. And then just the core thesis, right? Get rid of real estate brokers. Get rid of real estate agents. They're, they don't add any value, okay? We need to mm-hmm. simplify processes in the U.S. economy, in the global economy, to get rid of profit takers, middlemen, profit-taking middlemen that don't add value. Just mm-hmm. make transactions one-to-one. Make them digital. Make them direct-to-consumer. Make them mm-hmm. fast. Make them convenient. What e- Amazon to e-commerce needs to happen across all transactions, all verticals. So not mm-hmm. just buying clothes, but buying homes, buying cars, buying anything, applying for mortgages, all this stuff needs to be direct to consumer, needs to be no middlemen, needs to be convenient, digital, hassle-free. So I, that core thesis to me still remains very much alive. So I am still very, very bullish on open door stock, despite that call having gone entirely the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. conviction is believing in a company's fundamentals, not in the stock price. And I believe in that company's fundamentals tremendously. Okay. Uh, Valentin Vanta, Luke, what is your opinion about Palantir stock? According to all data scientists I talk to, Palantir is the most kick-ass data science firm on the planet. And their platform okay. is second to none. And data is the 21st century version of oil. And Mm -hmm. more and more companies are going to lean into data to drive business outcomes, positive business outcomes, especially uh, in environments where the economy slows, where you have to improve productivity and efficiency um, and cut costs. Data is a way to do that. You can leverage data to do that uh, most effectively. So I think data is going to grow as as an important piece of the enterprise stack and data science is going to be the most valuable skill in the enterprise stack. So Palantir as the best data science platform should be one of the most valuable enterprise software platforms in the world over the next few years. So very bullish on them. I see them as more of like a, like an early stage Microsoft. Microsoft was building a platform at a productivity software platform at a time when productivity Mm -hmm. was very important to the, the, the enterprise. Uh, Palantir is doing that, but mm-hmm. it's like the next generation of productivity, leveraging in-depth data analytics to drive more mm-hmm. productive business outcomes for business, uh, more productive business outcomes for companies of all shapes and sizes. So, I really like Palantir, and I think that stock can go significantly higher from current levels. All right, uh, Ayakovo Stratu, uh, how will Porsche do? You know, I don't really have an opinion on it, mostly because uh, I haven't really looked into the IPO terms and the valuation and all that stuff. I mean, Porsche is a brand. is a great brand, and there's a lot of potential for them for, for their electric lineup. So um, fundamentally, it's solid, but I haven't looked at the specific valuation numbers, so I can't tell you, you know, is the IPO going to be a hit? Is the stock a great, great buy at these levels? Um, I got to look at the valuation numbers, frankly. But fundamentally, the story is very strong. Okay. Uh, Randy Green, Luke, what's your thoughts on digital twin technology? I'm hearing a lot about it. Surprise, it's not a part of your the innovation investor subscription service. Any thoughts? Um, well, 
it is a part of the we, we own a maybe I'll make that more clear to subscribers. We do own a stock and it's actually one of our strong buy stocks that is um that is a digital twin play. Uh so I will mm-hmm. maybe highlight that more clearly in, in the service to subscribers. But um yeah, I'm I'm very bullish on digital twin technology. I think the the coolest uh applications of it are for real estate space management. So if you're a hotel mm-hmm. operator, you're a Hilton. Um, one of the things I hate about booking hotels, because uh, I'm a huge, not a room snob, but like I like <laughs> rooms. Like I'm, I, I'm willing to pay for like a nicer room because I, it's, it's part of for me the yeah. fun of traveling is like you know getting a cool okay. hotel room, whatever. So, and part of the process that I hate about that is going to like mm-hmm. a Hilton website or Marriott website, and you, mm-hmm. you go to the room selection. Sometimes there's photos. Sometimes there's not. When there are photos, mm-hmm. maybe there's one or two photos. Maybe there's five or six, but they're just like generic photos of this type of room. You don't know like mm-hmm. the exact room you're going to get. You don't know what the view is. You don't know what this looks like. You don't know where the bed is situated, all that stuff. So like I would love technology where I, if I go on to Hilton, Marriott, whatever website, and I can click the room and I can actually do like a virtual a digital twin walkthrough of mm-hmm. that room. And I can see, okay, this is what it looks like. This is where this is. This is what the view is. This is the exact room I'm going to get. This is where it is in proximity to the elevator. A lot of a lot to do. Like that would be really, really cool. I would love that. And I think hotels could sell a lot more rooms and upsell people a lot more if they had that technology. So there's a real big financial incentive for hotels to do that. Um, in terms of space management for like a retailer or a restaurant operator. Makes a lot of sense to have digital twin tech. You own a lot of locations. You have your headquarters. You have your digital twin technology where you have your headquarters and you can virtually plug in to all of these digital twin spaces. So a digital twin of your location in San Diego, your location in Houston, your location in New York. And you can see, okay, mm-hmm. what, what traffic flows are looking like you, in real time. You can see uh, what your um, – your, uh, the retails, what your inventory is looking like real time. You can see what uh, interactions are looking like real time. You can see what the status of certain physical assets is like at certain times. So I think that allows for a much more effective decentralized uh, management of retail spaces that could be very, very useful to, uh, again, a retail operator, a restaurant operator. Um, and then a, another cool application of it, which is kind of more of a fun application from a consumer perspective, is digital twin technology of visiting places. So mm-hmm. uh, traveling is very expensive these days. And a lot of people don't, you know, have the money to travel because flights are insanely expensive. So it'd be really cool if mm-hmm. I could just sit at home and, and digitally plug into a twin of the Great Pyramids of Egypt or a twin of the Colosseum or a twin of the Eiffel Tower or a twin of the Great Wall of China and just plug into that and act like I'm visiting it, but not actually visiting it. I don't think it's going to be a replacement of travel. But it's a nice supplement of travel because the fact of the matter is mm-hmm. how many of us really get to see the Eiffel Tower in our lives? How many of us really get to see the Colosseum mm-hmm. in our lives? How many of us really get to see the Great Pyramids of Egypt in our lives, right? Like mm-hmm. I've never been to the Great Pyramids. Um, I hope to get there one day. But it would be very <laughs> cool if all 9 billion people, 8 billion people on Earth were able to see them by simply plugging in digital twin technology. So mm-hmm. uh, that democratization of travel access, of, of, of world travel, I think is, is a really cool application of, of digital twin technology. And then there's a lot of applications with manufacturing and manufacturing things in the digital twin space before you actually manufacture in real life. So there's lower risk and lower operating costs to that um, uh, manufacturing um, endeavor. 
So I think digital twin technology is, is really, really cool. And we do own a stock that is a very strong, pure play on digital twin technology in our, in our portfolio. So I will make that more clear to subscribers. Great. Uh, our last question from Shane Johnson, AKA the cork dork. Uh, Luke, if you could put on, if you could only put money into one of these three stocks, which one would you pick now? Uh, UI path, solid balance sheet and the safest pick fluence energy, Inc shaky balance sheet, but strong potential growth drivers with the administration's green energy budget or Fisker with production ramping up soon. Ooh. Of those three, it's between Fluence and Fisker, and I probably would go uh, – oh, man. Probably Fluence. Probably Fluence. I think okay. the George narrative is, is very strong, but I, I really do like Fisker for 2023. This has this is no knock against mm -hmm. Fisker. I think Fluence is really, really strong, and I think Fisker does have a strong 23 as well, but I, I, would, I would pick Fluence over Fisker. Okay. Well, that kind of wraps up all the questions. Uh, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? Covered a lot of ground today. So uh, <laughs> you, did, you covered I, a lot of ground today. I think, I'm, I think I'm all out of words, Aaron. All out of words for now. Um, I it, Maybe the, the parting words should be more of like just a psychology thing that – we all mm -hmm. tell ourselves, you know, we're going to buy the dip and we're going to ride out the bear market. And almost none of us do. Because when the time comes, it's really scary. Um, mm -hmm. It's like we can, you know, I, I'm an athlete or former athlete, not really much of an athlete anymore, but former athlete. You know, we all You're want to, we all want to, thank you. We all want to take the big shot. We all want to, you mm -hmm. know, we imagine ourselves making the game winner. But when the time comes and there's, you know, 13 seconds left and you're down one, and coach says, you ready to take this shot? Nine, nine out of 10 of us say, I, I don't know. Nine out of 10 of us are, are not really ready for that because when mm -hmm. the time comes to actually do something really important and meaningful, it can be very stressful and it can be very scary and it can be very intimidating. But that's mm -hmm. what we have right now. Uh, that, that's mm -hmm. kind of the opportunity we have before us. If, what I'm telling people is, hey, you had a time machine and you could – go back in time any point in time mm -hmm. and buy stocks mm -hmm. what what period would you choose you know would you choose mm -hmm. late 2007 when everybody was bullish and the markets were riding high and things looked great or would you mm -hmm. choose march 2009 when everybody was freaking out but you knew that everything was going to be okay and you mm -hmm. bought and they soared 70% over the next year. Uh, would you choose the peak of the dot-com bubble when everybody mm -hmm. was bullish and the world was going to change forever? Or would you choose late 2002 when it felt like the internet was a passing fad and none of these stocks were going to come back and the end of the world was near? You obviously mm -hmm. choose late 2002. Would you choose, you know, the mid 1980s when everything was booming like crazy or would you choose 1987 after that flash crash would you choose uh 1989 early 1990 when the economy was coming out of that flash crash or would you choose you know mid 1991 when we were dealing with the recession um the answers are mm -hmm. obvious right i mean you're going to choose if you had a time machine to go back in time and buy stocks you mm -hmm. choose the period the low points but 
if you were to take that time machine and go back to March 2009, you would realize, you would understand that nobody wanted to buy stocks at that time. Everybody was scared to death. Everybody was scared to death in March 2020. Everybody was scared to death in March 2009. Everybody was scared to death in December 2018. I remember December 24th, 2018. That was a scary day. The day before Christmas, markets were tanking. People were freaking out. Everybody was scared in late 2002 about tech stocks. But it's that point of peak fear that if you had a time machine that you would go back in time and buy stocks to. Well, we have that time right now. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not using it to buy stocks because at the moment, they are very scary times. But- we don't need the time machine. All we have to do right now is hold our nose a little bit and dive in and say, you know, mm-hmm. things are probably going to be real choppy, real volatile, real scary and real spooky. But I know that if I buy high quality stocks at these significant discounts today, I am probably the odds are very high that I'm going to make a lot of money over the next 12 months, a lot of money over the next two years, a lot of money over the next three, five, 10 years that doing mm-hmm. this today is a great short, medium, and long-term financial decision. So I just think we have to keep that perspective in mind. Understand this time is not different. This is not the apocalypse. This is not nuclear Armageddon. This is not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It's just another bust cycle in the boom-bust repeating pattern of modern capitalism that will eventually and probably quite soon at prices not much lower than where we are today turn into a new boom cycle. So that's that. Those are my parting words, more of a psychological kind of pep talk than anything else. But I think it's a very important one to hear in this market environment. Well, it's definitely a good pep talk. And we want to thank everyone for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we will see you next week. Until then. Bye, all.